This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. All right, so here's the big question. What goes in a good Easter basket? Who said Reese's? Reese's. Passy, number two most popular Easter candy. Reese's peanut butter eggs. Amen, right? Amen, right? Who's getting that one wrong? Right? Love, love. You know what number one is? Chocolate bunny. No, not chocolate bunny. No. Jelly beans. No. What? Peeps is on the list. Peeps is on the list. Yep. Yep. No. Cadbury. Cadbury cream eggs. All I ever wanted growing up. There are a lot of things that I wanted. But when Easter time rolled around, remember the commercial? And the, 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 the bunny would hop across and then the Cadbury eggs. And I thought, because I grew up in a home, we didn't really do a lot of Easter egg candy kind of stuff. And I'm like, surely that is heaven in a little foil wrapper. God, if I could but have one of those, my life would be complete. And so I saved up my pennies and I stole down to the Golden Dawn and I bought six of them. And before I could get home, I had stuffed all six into my gluttonous massive mouth and I wanted to throw up all over the road. It was disgusting. Talk about false advertising. But yeah, Cadbury's number one. Um, jelly beans on the list. What kind of jelly bean? The black. Did you say licorice? Oh, yes. Love. Yes. Yes. Licorice. Spiced jelly beans. Spiced jelly beans. Yeah. What else goes into a good Easter basket? Oh, oh, yeah, that's yummy. Someone said peeps, right? Peeps. <laughs> Terry speaks. <laughs> um, maybe we had someone in the first service who practices the same thing that, that my wife does. My wife has a preliminary peep preparation process where she, you have to take the peeps and you have to, to have to puncture the cellophane wrapper because no one wants to eat raw peeps, right? They need to mature a little bit, right? And so they, they harden, harden a little bit. And that's, that's yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Try it. Try it. You did not know how wrong you are <laughs> until you eat a peep properly, please, people. <laughs> what else goes into a good Easter basket? Toys, right? Some kind of toys. Maybe you kind of get to that place as a parent where you understand, I am intentionally making my Easter more difficult by giving them more candy. I am intentionally making the Sunday school teacher's life harsh by giving them more Easter candy. So you, hey, what else can we put in the basket? Maybe it's some toys, swimsuits, flip-flops, whatever they might be, right? And so you, you prepare the Easter basket maybe and, and you're giving gifts, all these wonderful things that go into Easter baskets, Someone gives, hides, finds. Have you, any of you ever, you know, someone was told that there was an Easter basket, but it never went out? And so a kid might be running around the house trying to find an Easter basket that doesn't exist. <laughs> That's fun. You should try. <laughs> Lots of things can go into a goodies, but aren't we missing something? Aren't we kind of missing something pretty important when it comes to a good Easter basket? Evaluating a good Easter basket? I mean, come on, guys. You, I know it's right there on the tip of your tongue. Right. 
Isn't it death? Isn't it death? Isn't this what the day is actually all about? There's this neat thing that's going on in your head right now. I can see it in your eyeballs. You don't want that I'm right. You know I'm right. You just don't like it. What we will do, though, is right now what you're trying to say is, well, yeah, what if we made it smaller? Just a little bit of death. Just a little, a little death. Maybe we could kind of tuck him in the back a little bit there. And it's still there, but we don't want to take away from the joy of the basket. And the basket is what it's, so if we could put death there, then maybe, yeah, you're right. It's a part, but let's not let death ruin all the wonderful things that Easter is, right? We'll put death in the back and we'll make it really, really small. But that's just not what the Bible says, is it? Because in truth, doesn't death cover the whole thing? Doesn't death blanket the whole story? What do we do with death? As we look towards the day, there is this thing that seems to be... That's better, right? I mean, let's, we don't need to, we don't need to, I know what we can do here. There, that's better. Maybe give some sunglasses up here. There, let's dress them up a little bit. Maybe we make death a happier thing, a more joyful thing. Then, then, then it's not so bad. Is there a way that we can kind of jazz up, you know, soften the blow? That's what we like to do with death. In essence, that's what we do with the cross, right? I mean, that's a that's a that's a pretty one that has stained wood and it's it's even and it's soft to the touch. That that's a and the one that's around your neck. That's that's comfortable, isn't it? It's not heavy. It's kind of expensive. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, valuable piece of jewelry because that's what we do to death. We want to dress it up a little bit. We don't want death bearing and boring into the back of our minds. Heaven forbid we see it the way Jesus saw it. That's our challenge this morning. We're two weeks away from Resurrection Weekend. 
It's going to be upon us. Some of us have entered into this Lenten Easter season with a sense of reverence and we're letting God bore into our hearts the hard, compact soil of our heart. And some of us have experienced what it's like for him to take that holy spade and shovel and pickaxe and he turns things over. And we don't like it, but we know that we need it. And now, just a couple weeks away from Easter weekend, Good Friday. Odd name, Good Friday. Maybe we need to have the conversation about death. Maybe we need to see it the way Jesus saw it, treat it. Like Jesus treated it. To help us, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9. Lost my Bible there for a second. Sermon almost got really long there for a little bit. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 53. There's Bibles that are located in the seats in front of you if you wanted to follow along. Or Ryan will have them up on the screen. See, he's good. You guys are thankful for Ryan. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. If you're following along online, that's awesome. Luke 9, let me read it for you. 51 through 53. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. I want to read that first verse one more time, okay? I'm just going to read verse 51. That's so we're going to drill down. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want to make some observations for us this morning. If you have a set of notes, maybe there's things that you want to write down to help you remember them, or there's a verse uh, that I bring up, or maybe you get a question through the course of the message, and you are perfectly free to stand up and raise your hand and ask it. That's cool. Most people have never done that. Um, <laughs> dude, I'm feeling pretty good today. So, or you can write it down and email it to me. I want to help you engage with the message. Okay, but, but here's some things that I noticed as we just look at that verse, because it's, it's put together very simply, and there's some important things in here. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, let's understand this this morning. Jesus' death was God's redeeming plan. Something that we want to remember. Jesus' death was God's redeeming plan. Let me unpack each of those words and Ryan will have them up there for you for a little bit. As the days drew near for him to be taken up. That phrase, as the days drew near, it's a phrase in essence that means according to divine purpose. That something that God had determined and destined to occur was about to happen. This isn't accidental. This is by design. 
We need to see that within the context of the story. And I know I bring us back to the story all the time because if you start living the wrong story, you're gonna end the wrong story the wrong way, okay? So you need to understand the great story of God that the poetry of scripture points us towards. And where does that story start? Because remember, I say it all the time. Normally I stand over here. The story begins with, come on, come on. I know you wanna say it. God creation. That's right. Good creation. Well done. Good job. The story begins with good creation. God creates a good creation and he loves it. And it is in relationship. It is balanced. Everything is working together according to purpose. And humanity is nestled right in the center of it as his image bearers charged to care for and nurture creation. It's good. It's the way things are supposed to be. That's where the story starts. But what what happens? What does humanity do to everything? Screw it up. That's a theological term here in Piqua. Okay? That's good. That's good. We break stuff. Humanity, we break stuff. We, it's, we just do it. In, in two specific ways, as you think about what we do, it's treason, it's corruption. Treason. We decide, God, we can do this without you. God, we can reign without you. That's treason. When you do that, when you go down that path, the result is corruption. Corruption. Some of you have plants that are starting to poke up through the soil and they're so confused what's going on. They have no idea. They're they're like, I thought it would be warmer than this. We did too. We did too. The daffodils are popping and other things are popping. What's going to happen if I take that daffodil and I cut it off from the source of its root? What instantaneously happens to that daffodil? Whether or not you see it or not, it instantly begins to die. And the longer that it is cut off from the source, the more and more that corruption becomes visible, doesn't it? When we, as humanity, rebelled against the opening of the story, against God's good creation, we cut ourselves off from the source of life. And that leads to death. But at the same time, what happens? We see glimmers of God's good promise. I'll fix this, he says. You can't fix this. This is beyond you. This is beyond your expertise. This is beyond your ability. This is beyond anything that you can possibly do. Okay? God promises, and we see it in glimmers, where he says something to a man like named Abraham. We see something to a people. He says, I'm going to do something in this specific place called Israel. I'm going to do something within a certain law. I'm going to do something to a certain king in a line of kings. I will deliver us from the I will deliver you from the corruption and from your treason. Culminating in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And it's on the other side of that resurrection of the delivering king where we now participate in the restoration work of God, right? That's what we as followers of Jesus do. What are we to be about? Oh, this week we're to be about restoration in the hearts and the lives of people, in God's good creation. As we look forward to celebration when the good king returns. That's the story. But what's in the middle of the story? What's in the middle of the story? It's death. Is there any way, maybe, we could go around that? Could we skip from the promise part around death and just go to the happy restoration part? Can we have a fun Easter basket full of yummies and death's not a part of it? Is there, could we do that? Because that would make us so much happier. Death makes me feel like I need a safe place. No, you can't skip death. To take death out of the story is to remove the deliverance of the king. To remove death is to remove deliverance. Jesus' death was God's redeeming plan. If you were to look at Galatians chapter 4, 4 to 5, this is one of the letters that you guys have been reading in your Bible reading, if you've been following along with me through Scripture. Uh, Galatians, you just went through Galatians, you worked through Ephesians, but in Galatians chapter 4, Four to five, it says it this way. Galatians four, four to five. But when the fullness of time had come, same kind of phrase, okay? According to divine purpose. God sent forth his son, the delivering king, Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, big word, important word, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem, okay? To redeem. Redeem means to liberate. Redeem means to deliver. So here's something else to write down in your notes that might be helpful. Only Jesus' redeeming death delivers resurrection life. Only Jesus' redeeming death delivers resurrection life. I'll give you a chance to write that down. Only Jesus' death. A redeeming death delivers resurrection life. That word redeem means to liberate something. It means to rescue. It means to deliver. And only Jesus' death will do that. Remember, what did we learn from the story? What do we have to be reminded of? Okay, because of our treason, that treason places us as prisoners to the law. In the United States, what's, what's the penalty for treason? It's death, right? You know where they get that idea, right? You know where you get that idea, right? If you choose to be an enemy of the state, you must be dealt with in a such way that preserves that kingdom's character and quality and holiness. 
and to be treasonous in the presence of a holy God and a holy king merits by law death. Only a redeeming death can provide life. But further, what did that treason do to creation? What does sin do to you? Maybe you have enough awareness. Maybe you've been walking life long enough. Maybe you've been walking with Christ long enough. What does sin do to you? It corrupts you, doesn't it? It destroys you. I was visiting a woman in the hospital this last week. The doctors can't figure out what's wrong, just that there's something that's wrong. And this is the type of little old lady who just, you know, loves to give the pastor a hug. She just hasn't figured out in seven years, I'm not a hugger. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. I love it. She's, oh, pastor, and she'll squeeze me and then she'll tell me her stories. But I walked into that ICU room because that's where she is and she's hooked up to tubes and there's monitors. And you could see that there was a corruption a brokenness that where there was supposed to be life and vibrancy, death, the dark stranger had worked into the room. And I'm sitting with the family afterwards and we're talking and we're processing because they can't figure out what it is that's releasing such a toxin throughout her system that everything is falling apart. She, her breathing is labored. Her thinking is off. I'm just like, guys, I love you, but we need to be honest. This day might not go the way we want it to. You cannot ignore the dark stranger in the room. It's Jesus, his blood, that is the purifying, cleansing agent that washes away the stains of death. That's why once a year back in the Old Testament, the priests would go through the tabernacle and they would cleanse it top to bottom. And you know what they would use? They ain't using magic erasers. They ain't using bleach. You know what they would sprinkle all over everything? Blood. Blood. And it's only Jesus' blood that washes away my stains. Only Jesus' redeeming death delivers resurrecting life. I mean, I'm not a really, really bad person. I'm okay. I'm better than I was. My blood's not going to get it done. My blood's not going to get it done. It's not. Allie, she's just one of the nicest people I know. She's just sweet to the core. As wonderful and nice as she is, her blood's not going to get it done. Her blood's not going to get it done. Brooksy in the back. I love Doug Brooks, man. We've been through hell and back. He's my buddy. As much as I love Doug Brooks, his blood's not going to get it done. It lacks the power. It lacks the purity. Only Jesus' redeeming death delivers resurrection life.
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's why, here's something else to write down in your notes. Jesus's physical life involved embracing his death. Jesus's physical life, his time on earth, his 33 years involved embracing that death. Give you a chance to write that down. Make sure you get all the words. I worked hard on the words. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, okay, put it in our term, when the time for him to die came by God's design, what did he do? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He made the intentional cognitive decision, I'm going to my death. That's what awaits in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of the politic. It's the center of the religion. It's the center, it's where the tabernacle is at. He's going to cleanse, tabernacle down, heart to heart. He's providing that. He's got to go to that place. Going to Jerusalem, setting his faith. I'm deciding to go to my crucifixion. He is embracing his death. Paul will say he is obedient to death, even death on a cross. It means he doesn't, he doesn't let himself get distracted. We like to get distracted, right? Because death is hard. Life is hard. Being human is hard. Being a parent is hard. These are difficult things. I mean, my wife and I were just talking this morning. Like, oh, we have to do life again. Like, yeah, there's going to work again. And there's, yeah, and there's trials and trips. Yeah, it's hard. And so we will do things to immerse ourselves and to dress him up and to put things on and pick things around and turn him around because we don't want to be pressed upon the reality of our finiteness. We will let ourselves be distracted and put other things in the basket. Or we'll work really hard to avoid it. And we'll fabricate theological ideas wherein we begin to believe the lie that an obedient Christian life doesn't involve things like suffering. But Jesus embraced his death. I want you to notice what happens next in verse 53. I think it'll help. It kind of slapped me in the face this week. Maybe it'll slap you around too. Go to House on the Rock. You get mugged and slapped. This is how we roll. Put that on your bumper sticker. Luke 9, 52 to 53. Okay. He has made the decision. I'm going to Jerusalem, okay? And Jesus sent messengers, heralds, ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because... 
His face was set towards Jerusalem. If you know a little bit of Jesus' ministry, some parts of that might get your attention because he's had ministry in Samaria before. Very effective ministry. They like him in Samaria. So get the geography. Geography is really important, okay? Okay, got a little strip of land called Israel up in the north, Galilee. Little Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus has most of his ministry. That's where he's from. Nazareth is up there. Most of his disciples are from up there. Capernaum, Peter, James, John, those guys, Sea of Galilee, walking on water. All that stuff happens to the north. Way down to the south, you have Jerusalem and Jericho, Judea. That's where all the power base is. Jesus has to go from here to here. He's got to pass through here, which is Samaria. Samaria is like no man's land for the Jews. These are ethnic half-breeds in their minds. These are bloodlines of Jews that had lingered behind the dispersion and had intermarried with outsiders. These are mutts and dogs in their ethnic estimation. Further, there's a little bit of a religious tiff, a battle between Jews and Samaritans. If maybe you remember or not, I'll tell you the story anyways, so here you get it, okay? In John 4, Jesus is going through Samaria, and the disciples are like, are we going through Samaria? Oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Maybe we should go at nighttime. No, we're going during the day when everyone can see us. We're going through Samaria. And he stops off at a well. And a woman is coming out, and she's a Samaritan. And Jesus says to her, could I have some water? And she's like, uh, you're a Jew. You don't ask Samaritans for water. And then Jesus is like, please? And begins this discussion between Jesus and the woman about where life comes from. Spiritual life, the vibrancy of living water. And Jesus starts to meddle a little bit in her sexual life. If you know this story, she's like, hey, uh, he's, he's like, hey, where's your husband? He's like, I don't got a husband. No, you got five, girl. And she's like, um, time to change the subject real quickly. So where should we worship at? I mean, it's this big turn that she takes because Jesus is starting to do what only Jesus can do. But the reason she asks the question about where should we worship is because the Samaritans had their own center of worship on their own mountain. Jews had the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's this battle. Should we worship here or should we worship down in Jerusalem? They're divided over religious lines and cultural lines and historical lines. And Jesus breaks through all of that and he ministers grace and they love Jesus because the Savior has come to Samaria. Woohoo! Whole town's coming out and flocking to Jesus. They're embracing his message. So, why is it this time when Jesus goes to Samaria and he sends friends ahead? Hey, go to that town, tell them I'm coming. I'd like them to get like a hotel room ready for me. We're going to need some dinner. Because I'm on my way to Jerusalem to the temple. They're, they're like, excuse me? They resist him. And the reason that they resist him is because Jesus isn't playing their cultural games. He's not following their religious assumptions.
Jesus is going to where the problem is. And rather than making them feel safe, Jesus confronts them with the fact that he's the king and he has his work to do and they don't want anything to do with it. Why would you go to Jerusalem? We have our own center of worship here. Jesus, why are you poking with that? I like this. Jesus, why are you drawing my attention? This makes me comfortable and this makes me happy and this makes me numb to my issues and my problems. Jesus, why are you confronting me with the cultural and the ethnic issues that we have here in this country? Jesus, why won't you play safe? Jesus, why won't you play fun? Why won't you do those things? Jesus, why you bring up death? Beware rejecting Jesus' death. Beware rejecting his death. You know what James and John want to do? There's some of the guys that go along with him. James and John have some anger issues. They just do. Not that any of you have anger issues. I've never watched any of you guys drive. <laughs> To the Samaritan. Maybe it was James and John who went, I, we don't know exactly which were the disciples who went to prepare the room, but I can, I'd like to think it was James and John and they're walking up there like, you're not going to believe this. They won't let us in and they won't give us a hotel room. So you know what we should do? Let's burn them down. Let's just burn them down. We will call down fire on their heads. This is exactly what they want to do. They literally want Jesus to call down fire to consume the Samaritans. Little trost over here is like, oh my goodness, Paul's not allowed to drink coffee anymore. <laughs> but what's Jesus' response? You know, you're right. If they're going to reject me, let's just burn them. No, what's Jesus' response? Let them be. And graciously he moves on. But notice, and this is what I would say to you you have the opportunity to welcome into your home. You have the opportunity to welcome his grace to come near. Do not, because of your own choice, force him to pass by. What do we do in the presence of death this morning? What will help us as followers of Jesus? Or maybe you're here for this morning and this is all new to you. And you seriously thought it was about Cadbury eggs and spiced jelly beans. And that's great. I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. I'm very thankful. Maybe instead of rejection, it's reception. Maybe instead of pushing, it's opening yourself up to that message. It's acknowledging your treason. It's acknowledging your own corruption and it's letting his grace heal you and then becoming a part of a story that changes the world. Maybe that's for you this morning. I'd love to help you. There's, there's tear-off connection cards in your notes. There's a way that you can ask for prayer. There's a way that you can engage that story. Maybe just writing your name down saying, hey, I'm here and I need help. We'd love to be able to pray for you and meet you in that space. Don't force him to walk by. 
But another thing that you might consider doing is in a couple weeks on a Friday night, on Good Friday, we will gather here and we will give the dark stranger his place. We will let death enter the room. We won't lie about it. We will let the story of Jesus' assassination rip and poke and tear. We will let the awkwardness of the message, we will try to, to the best of our ability and our imagination, to enter into that space that the disciples experienced when their rabbi and their best friend was butchered in front of them. A story we have worked so hard to dress up and make pretty. But there's nothing pretty about treason. There's nothing pretty about corruption. Maybe that's something to put on your calendar to bring your family to. And he set his face to go to death. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions.